Hey, we want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedules to join us on the JF Podcast. It is our hope that this most recent talk teaches you, inspires you, and challenges you to live the life you were designed to live. If this message has helped you in some way, help someone else by sharing it. And if you want more information about who we are, what we do, or you'd like to contribute to our community, you can find us at JolietNaz.org. Thanks so much for listening. Well, hey, good job, guys. Thank you for this kit. Uh, If you haven't noticed, over the last few weeks, we've been trying to address the mess of the ghosts of Christmas past. Uh, If you haven't been with us over the last couple weeks, uh, we have been talking about the ghosts of Christmas past. And essentially, we've been saying this, that life for many of us during the Christmas season, when things are going well, they tend to get better. And when things get worse, especially during the Christmas season, they get magnified and they get way worse. And the time that's supposed to be so wonderful actually becomes worse for most of us. And so the first week, uh, if you weren't with us, we addressed this idea of overcoming offenses, that during the Christmas time, during the Christmas season, there are plenty of people that offend you. And it's not just the little offenses, but it's the big offenses as well that we have trouble getting over. And last week we talked about overcoming labels, labels that people have given you in life. And we just said this, that it's easy to live up to labels because their expectations that we've already met. And so we talked about naming it something new. It was a great week. And I would just say this. I don't have time to rehash the last two weeks, but go online. You can go to JolietNaz.org or you can go to our podcast and you can catch up for those two weeks. Today, we're addressing something that I think is something that is given to us by us, not necessarily by someone else, not necessarily maybe what somebody else has done to us. It could be. Uh, But today we're talking about overcoming shame. And I'm going to do the best I can to to wrap it up quickly because I know that you have to beat the snow and get back to plenty of other important things. So if you'd pray for me before we begin, I'd appreciate it. Lord, we do give thanks for this day. We thank you for this time, this time of Christmas Eve where we celebrate The God who has made himself known to the world. And so today we acknowledge that you are the Savior of the world. Today we acknowledge that you are the Savior of us. And that you have the capacity to heal and to change our lives. And so we give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I had a good friend uh, growing up. And I won't share his name for the sake of privacy, but we lived next door to each other, and every morning during the summer, uh, at the crack of dawn, we would put on shoulder pads, helmets, and we would go outside, and we would bash each other's faces in with Hutch football pads. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with Hutch football pads. It's this thin piece of plastic on the helmet and the shoulder pads, and it says, warning, not used for sports contact in sports. Like, that's the warning. And every day we would go out and we would play football and we'd beat each other's heads in. And that, it was just a great time. And, you know, we would do that all the way into the fall, even to when it would get cold. And I, I was reminded of, of it was nearing the end of the season and my friend was gone. And I noticed in the yard that there was something white. Now, snow wasn't on the ground yet, but I noticed there was something white. And so I went over and I noticed that it was a white football. Now, you don't see white footballs very often. And so I was pretty excited and I picked it up and I flipped it over. And on the other side of it, it said, Cleveland Browns. Now, I grew up just an hour north of Cincinnati. 
And you didn't root for the Browns where I lived. In fact, if you, we just said this about Cleveland, that everything in Cleveland was the mistake by the lake. Everything about it, other than Cedar Point, it was the mistake by the lake. So we rooted for the Bengals, not that they were any better, uh, but we rooted for the Bengals growing up. And so I knew, I knew that this football had to be my best friend's football because he was a Cleveland Browns fan. And, you know, he wasn't around. And so I thought, well, he's not home. I'm just going to house it for him for the winter. I'm going to just take it in, put it in my toy chest, keep it dry, nice and safe uh, for him. I'll do it for free. I'm just that kind. And so I did. So I took it home with me, put it in my toy chest, forgot about it. And occasionally I would pull it out. And I sort of became fond of this football. I don't know why. I don't know if it was the color or I don't know. I kind of just ignored the Cleveland Browns part. But I liked the white football. I liked the way it felt. I liked that it was squishy. I liked the size. It was just a good football. And at some point it just dawned on me that, and I don't know what it was. It wasn't bright or great, but I pulled a Sharpie out of my parents' desk drawer and I decided that I would write the letters T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N on this football. Now, for those of you who don't know me, that's my last name. I wrote my name all over this football. And, you know, from time to time, my brother and I would play with this football and I'd just grown fond of it. And and then, the, like, a few weeks had gone by, a few months had gone by, and I thought to myself, I'd realized that I had done something wrong. I was feeling guilty about the fact that I had written something over something that wasn't mine. And so, what do you do? You rectify the situation the way you brought the situation into being. And so, I got out the Sharpie again. And I thought, this time, nobody will know that this was mine. So, I drew a big square around it where it said T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N. I drew a big square around it. And then I took the Sharpie and I put a big X through my name as if nobody would ever know that I put my name on this football. Brother and I must have been outside playing football, throwing it around. We came inside. A few weeks later, I'm playing with my next door neighbor and I hear his mother say to me, Brad, could you please come down here? And so I went down into the kitchen Her back was turned to me, and when she turned around, she was holding this white football that looked like it had been mine, knowing darn well it wasn't mine at all. And, you know, after that, things got a bit fuzzy. You know, we had this long conversation. I don't remember a lot of the conversation. I just know that that football was held in my face, and it was a reminder of, why did you write your name on this? This wasn't yours. And then you crossed it out to cover it up. And, and I got to say this, grace to his mother, she ended the conversation so well. But during the conversation, I felt extremely ashamed of myself. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking back then, it was like, my goodness, am I really this kind of friend? Am I really this kind of person that would take something that's not mine, write my name on it as if I owned it, and say that it was mine? What kind of friend does that? And I thought what I'd done was who I was. And this is the interesting thing about our souls and our lives. Your soul, the deepest and truest part of who you are, is easily wrecked, it's easily broken, and it's easily destroyed when you allow shame to enter your life. And here's what I know about shame. Shame is a potent emotion because it is a soul-breaking emotion. Shame is a potent emotion because it is a soul-breaking emotion. In other words, the soul being, again, the very essence of who you are. It is your identity. Shame has the potential to break your very personhood, to break you. In fact, 
Here's a little dirty secret about Christmas and shame. Some of you don't know this, but during Christmas time, we, we get to the point where we slow down, right? And slowing down allows shame to arrive in our lives. Slowing down allows shame to arrive in our lives. And you've had this experience. You've been decking the halls to the walls for the last three weeks. You've been running around. You've been eating. You've been wrapping. You've been buying. You've been attending Christmas parties. I mean, it's been busy, right? It's been busy. But then you eat on Christmas Day, or you open gifts, or you, your travel is up, and, and you sit down in the couch, or you sit down in, in the recliner, and you're going to watch a football game, or you're going to take a nap, and you, you've had this experience, where all of a sudden, when you slow down, shame arrives in the life. Your thing of your past, the thing that you struggle with the most, suddenly is staring you in the face. It's haunting you like a ghost from your past. And you've had people say this to you, are you Okay. Is there something wrong with you? And this is the truth about slowing down. Slowing down brings awareness to our souls. Slowing down brings awareness to our souls. And here's the problem. This can be a good thing. This can be a really good thing because like, you can be reminded about how good and how much joy and how much happiness is in your life. But it is also a reminder of the shame that you have in your life. You see, I've been in your shoes and you've been in my shoes. We experience shame in forms of addiction. It doesn't even have to be a big addiction. We always associate addiction with drugs or something else. But let's be honest. You have an addiction. I have an addiction. And it's a little thing. And it's the little thing that when we slow down, stares us in the face and it reminds us. It reminds us that our relationship with our spouse, our relationship with our friend, our relationship with that person we love it is actually affecting it. Maybe shame for you during the Christmas season is a recognition that you spent money that you don't have. And you're sitting down and you're looking at those gifts and you, the food is tasting really great, but you're reminded of the credit card bill that's going to come in. And you're ashamed of the fact that you spent money you knew you didn't have and things that you couldn't afford. Maybe you sit down when you slow down and you're reminded of the relationship with that coworker. Right, you remember the, the relationship with the coworker that went too far, that conversation you shouldn't have had that you had, and then maybe that date that you went on and that you shouldn't have had, and you just regret that, and you're feeling shame about that conversation that you've had with the coworker. Or maybe for some of you, when you slow down, all of a sudden you're aware of your family and your kids. Right? And for you, the shame is I'm a horrible parent because I just now realize I'm never home at all. I'm never around my kids. And not am I only not around my family, but I don't even know who my kids are. And they're growing up and you're looking at them and, and suddenly you feel shame about that. Maybe it has nothing to do with you at all. Maybe it has to do everything with the people sitting across from you at the Christmas table. See, you've, you've been across the Christmas table from people who have it better than you. Their life is better than you. They have a bigger house than you. They have a better car than you. They're fitter than you. I mean... Everything about them is perfect, and you feel ashamed because you can't provide that not only for you, but for your family. And you've really been at this one when it comes to shame. When you rehash the past, when you go home to your family's house, or you go back to your hometown, and your parents, and your brothers and sisters, and your friends, and your cousins say, do you remember when you got in that fight? Do you remember that reputation that, that you had? Do you remember... That person that you dated or that nickname you had, and all of a sudden you become ashamed. You, that shame just comes pouring back into your life because you're reminded of your past. And you begin to question. You begin to question Is my past who I am in the present? Is this really who I am 
And what's interesting is we don't know the difference between guilt and shame. We really don't know the difference between guilt and shame. Here's the difference. Guilt is, guilt is, I did. Shame is, I am. Guilt says, I did bad. Shame says, I am bad. And we connect. Here's what you need to know. We connect who we are with what has happened. That's an important line. We connect who we are with what has happened in life. And here's where I know that here's where the story goes for you and for me. It goes to shame-based thinking. Shame-based thinking. And there's three problems with shame-based thinking. The first one is perfectionism. See, what we do is we want to cover up the problems in our lives by pretending like everything is perfect. And so we mask, we put on a facade, we, we do everything we can to cover up our problems. Or maybe you've met people like this. You know their life is a mess, they just don't want to admit it. And they just cover everything up. Perfectionism. This is the problem with shame-based thinking. The other one is we are critical of ourselves and so we are critical of others. Have you ever met somebody who couldn't say anything positive about somebody else? You've been around those people? Pretty annoying, aren't they? And here's why they're annoying. Because as they're criticizing other people, you know that they're actually talking about the problems in their own life. Like you're criticizing somebody else because of the issue, the shame that you feel in your own life. And so that's a problem with shame-based thinking is we're critical of others because we're, crit we're critical of ourselves and we don't like who we are inside. And the last one is this. I love this idea. Self-defeating thoughts are a form of escape and protection. In other words, we are going to sabotage our future. We're going to expect the worst outcome. Because if it doesn't happen, then guess what? I was never hurt in the first place. And so we just ruin potential opportunities. We ruin relationships. And that's what shame-based thinking does to us. In fact, here's what I know to be true about shame-based thinking and shame in itself. It is not just an internal issue, it's an external issue as well. It is a relational issue for most of us. See, the shame that you experience as you slow down during the Christmas season, as you begin to identify with who you are, the shame within you, the shame within you begins to well up. And you begin to close yourself off from other people. You begin to stop talking. You begin to stop connecting. And it's a major relational issue for you. And you think it doesn't affect anybody else. The problem is, is it does. In fact, I would bet that's the reason why some of us have walked away from the church. That's why some of us have walked away from the faith. That is why some of us have walked away from God. Is we think, if we can't get past our shame, how could God do the same? If we can't get past our own shame, how could God do the same? And you say, you know what? It's just easier for me to walk away. And so it's true. It's not just an internal issue. It's a relational issue for you, for your spouse, for your friends, for your coworkers, and even between you and God. So here's the good news. There is good news. The whole series is about finding healing for you. And shame is not just a 21st century problem. It's an every century problem. Every century that has ever existed has had the issue of shame. And what's great is there are people, there are people who've recorded their experience, recorded their own experiences of shame, not only about their lives, but about other communities who are experiencing the same thing. 
And so today we're going to look at a letter written by a man named Paul, uh, who, by the way, is one of the people who experienced shame the most. See, if you're not familiar with Paul, he was wise, he was influential, and he was powerful within the Judaism faith, within the Jewish faith. And he was extremely important. And along came this guy named Jesus, hence the reason why all of us are here. Uh, along came this guy named Jesus. There was this major movement, and Paul was offended by what Jesus was doing. He was offended by what had happened in the life of Jesus. And so he started defending his faith. He started, as, as Scripture tells us, he was a guy who persecuted people. He had them hanged. He had them killed. He had them tried. Paul was not a nice guy at all. And Paul has this encounter with Jesus. I don't have time to cover it. It's an amazing story. You should read it. Uh, but he has this encounter with Jesus. And the guy he persecuted, he becomes the greatest proponent of. And he goes around and he begins to share what God has done in his life. But listen, Paul has a lot of travel. He has a lot of nights that he spends alone on his own. And you know and I know that his past, his past, the people that he's now fighting for often throw it in his face. Do you remember, Paul, when you used to kill our own people? And you can't tell me that Paul didn't have moments of doubt where he thought his past, the thing that he did was who he was. And he struggled with that. And he struggled with that. And so today he writes to a community out of his own experience. And what I love about this story and what I love about this letter is he's writing to a community that's dealing with shame as well. The Corinthian people. Now, the Corinthian people are great. They're really unruly. They're like my favorite show, The Vikings. Just unruly people. Um, really crazy. A lot of promiscuous uh, sex. And they uh, often, often, often drank beyond what they could they could hold. I mean, we think Americans have nothing on Corinthians. I'll just say that. And the thing is, is they were just kind of unruly people. And Paul comes in, he shares the good news with them. He tells them about Jesus. He models it for them. And, and, and they start to do well. They're building this community of faith. They're building the church. But then Paul leaves because he's got to plant other churches. He's got to talk to other communities of faith. And when he leaves, the shame shows up. You see, the unruliness of their lives, they thought, well, that was our experience. It's just kind of who we are. And so we'll just go back to that. We kind of, we, we don't know anything better. And, and, and quite frankly, Christ wasn't enough for, to shake their shame. They, they just couldn't grasp it. And so Paul writes back because he's, he's pretty sure that there's something going on. And, and I want you to listen to what he says this morning. He says this. He says, brothers and sisters... Think of what you were when you were called. Now I'm going to stop here. He says, brothers and sisters, I want you to think about what you were when you were called. And I love this language of called because it literally means divine purpose. It literally means divine purpose. He says, I want you to think back that before, before God called you, there was a time and you had a divine purpose in life. There was meaning. There was a reason. There was a reason why you were created. It was with purpose and it was on purpose. And the reason that I have created you, the reason that you exist, the reason why you are here is because I have God-sized dreams for you. I have God-sized expectations for you. I have God-sized hopes for my world. And guess how those hopes happen? Through you. Through you. 
you have a divine purpose. There's expectations, there's hopes, there's dreams that God has for his people. And they come about through you. But Paul implicitly says, he implicitly says, there's something wrong with you. I can't put a finger on it. But in order to go forward, in order to go to the future, we have to go to the past. We have to go back. And he says, I want you to remember. Listen, this is exactly what he says. He says, think of what you were. Now, this is a painful experience for many of us. Thinking about what we used to be, thinking about who we were in the past is a painful experience. But Paul says, I need to go back here because we have to address the major issue. And you're saying, well, what's the major issue? Paul says, not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential and not, not many of you were noble or had power at birth. In other words, these three measurements that, that Paul gives us are kind of like success in the Corinthian culture. That if you're wise, if you're influential, and if you're noble or you have power, these are the people that kind of get things done. And Paul says, I think he gives them credit. He says, there were not many of you. I think he wanted to say, none of you were wise. None of you were influential or noble. And what he says to them is, do you remember when you were living under the poverty line of social standards? Do you remember that you were living under the poverty line of social standards? You were unruly, you were drunkards, and you did lots of things. Lots of things that, quite frankly, just made a mess. You were nobodies. You were nothing. You were nothing. And so he addresses this issue for them. And I, and, and I love it because um, I think what he wants to say is this, is that these people weren't measuring up. These people weren't measuring up to what success was. And often I think for many of us, when we don't live up to what the world says we should be, we feel shame about that. In fact, this is true. Shame is our comparison of where we are and where we think the world thinks we should be. And because the world says you should be here, we just think we'll never be. And often we feel ashamed about not being good enough, about the thing that had happened about that problem or issue. We feel shame about that. And Paul wants to say this, that in order for you to get over it, it's exactly what he's doing right now, I need you to own it. To get over it, you need to own it. In other words, I need you to go back and I need you to look it in the face and I need you to say, yep, there's that divorce. There was that bad relationship. There was that bad choice. There was that moment that I made that stupid, stupid, stupid mistake. And I'm going to look at it in the face and I'm going to own it. And that's the thing. To get over it, you have to own it. And to get to the future, you have to look it in the face. And then Paul says to the Corinthian people, this is the next step for them. After you own it, after you look it in the face, he says, but God chose the foolish. Notice contrast with the word wisdom. Things of, uh, of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. And Paul again takes them back because I says, he says, I want you to own it, but there's something else that I need you to do. He says, awareness of your nothingness is the start to the new future. Awareness of your nothingness is the start of your new future. 
You see, the only way that you can measure progress in life is from the bottom up, not the top down. If we think, if we think moving from the top to down is success, that's how we measure success, we would all say that's not it. But we would say anything that starts at the bottom and is moving, has a trajectory upward, that is, that is movement. That is good. That is success. And what I want, I think what Paul wants to do is he wants to take the Corinthian people back to the moment where they remembered where they were nothing. They were absolutely nothing. And God says, I've used the lowly. I've used the poor. I've used those who aren't powerful. And what it is, is essentially this. You should never allow shame to become you, but be a banner of what God can do. You should never allow shame to become you, but be a banner of what God could do. This is what Paul is bragging about in his own life. It is what he is bragging about in his own life, that God has showed up in his life. And what he's talking to the Corinthians about is that God could show up in your life and use the things that you think bring you shame to move you to a better future. See, if I could step into your stories, some of you would say, this has been my experience. Yes, I've had a failed marriage. Yes, I remember the time that I spent a year in jail or two years in jail. I remember the time that my wife walked out on me. I remember the time when my kids said they wanted nothing to do with me. I remember when I had hit rock bottom. But it was God who was there to pick up the pieces for me. He used that situation. He used that problem to remind me, to remind me that there is something more to this life, more than what I could ever do, and it comes through him. And so you're saying to me today, maybe there are some of you saying to me today, Brad, I am at rock bottom. I am at rock bottom. I'm in the middle of a divorce. I'm in the middle of a bad, bad decision. I'm in the middle of a Christmas that feels miserable because of a mistake that I've made. Some of you are there, right? And you're saying, what can I do from here? And I love what Paul says to the Corinthian people because they're rock bottom. They are living in their shame. I love what he says next. He says, it is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us, who has become for us wisdom. Remember he said, none of you are wise. He's become wisdom from God. That is our righteousness. In other words, none of you, none of you had influence. See, when I see the word righteousness, I think about God's divine calling and purpose in our lives. And, and he said, none of you had influence, but God became for you. He became for you influence and righteousness. He became holiness. In other words, we think holiness is, is this idea of being set apart and only powerful people, only people who are important are set apart. And God says, I have become for you a people who are set apart. So the answer to the question you're asking me is, what can I do? There's nothing. There's nothing that you can do, but only what Jesus can do for you. And that is the story of Christmas. And there's nothing you can do to get out of the rock bottom, the shame of the life that you experience. It is only Christ. It is only Jesus who, as Paul says, I love the language, becomes for us our hope and our redemption. 
You see, Jesus has come. The whole idea of Advent is that God comes and he stands in the gap for you and me. He stands in the gap for our shame and our issues and our problems. And he says, let me take those on for you for just a minute. Have you ever had anybody stand in the gap for you? You ever had anybody do something that you didn't want to do or do something you couldn't do on your own? I remember when I was, I was deployed. We were uh, just outside of Baghdad, and we had, we'd only been there for a couple months. And I remember um, the sergeant comes to us. I'm just, a, uh, I think, a specialist at the time, and um, not really special at all. I don't know why they call them specialists. They're still really low. Um, and it says, hey, we have a mission. And are there any volunteers, anybody that would like to go on this? And um, I was young. I mean, I think I was 22, 20. I don't know. how I wasn't very old. And I had just been engaged to Janelle. And I was thinking about my future of having kids and seeing my family again. And we've always been taught, if they ask for a volunteer, never volunteer. And so they said, who would like to go on this mission? And we knew that it was kind of dangerous. There had been IEDs. And so I didn't raise my hand. I'm not going. I've got important things in my life. I've got Janelle. I've got future kids. Uh, by the way, thank God for that. Um, and I remember just being pretty selfish. And my best friend, who had a brand new baby, who had a beautiful wife, who had a lot going for him in life, a little bit older than I was. I mean, he was well-established. He said, I'll go on. I'll go on this mission. And I know it may seem small, but I remember that kind of being a pivotal point for me. I remember that being a, pivot, a pivotal point for me in my life because... It allowed me to move. It allowed me to move my focus from what I couldn't do to what I could be. You see, if he could do this, if he could stand in the gap, if he could do something I couldn't do, why couldn't I do it? And I remember what that was like for him to go on that for us and him coming back. And I'm thinking, I'm so glad I didn't have to do it. But from that point on, it kind of motivated me. It motivated me to be braver to be willing to, to volunteer more. And I volunteered for a lot of dumb things. Um, and by the grace of God, I'm still here. But we have, the thing that Christ does for us is it moves our focus. And this is what I need you to understand. We need to move our focus to what I'm not, to who Christ is. Now this is sort of like last week, to some degree. It's a reminder of last week. Last week was about labels, though. That's about what other people say about you. This is what you say about you. This is the shame that you experience when you slow down during Christmas time. This is the thing that you struggle getting over. And all I want to say is, you have to shift your focus from what I'm not to who Christ is. So, so when you came in this morning, you were given a card, right? And some of you handed it back, and you're like, it's already filled out. Or, no, this isn't my card. It's not about me. Uh, this isn't mine. Listen, uh, if you have those cards, would you pull those out for just a second? I hope you still have them with you. But somebody filled out this card that, that was handed to you earlier. Somebody filled this out. And the things that are on here literally have to do with things that we feel the most shame about. And so today you're going to stand in the gap for somebody else. Today you're going to stand in the gap for somebody else. So if you've ever, ever struggled with intense fear, anxiety, depression, or other mental health issues, and you feel shame about that, and somebody marked that on a card, would you stand? Would you stand? I've struggled with overwhelming feeling of guilt 
or regret. If somebody marked that on your card, would you stand? I've struggled with being poor, bankrupt, foreclosure, debt, or debt I couldn't repay. If you've got that, would you stand? I've struggled with substance abuse. I've struggled with serious thoughts and attempted suicide. I've been verbally abused, abused in other ways. I've struggled with eating disorders, weight or body image issues. I've struggled with a lack of education or feeling unintelligent. I've struggled with dishonesty or being untrustworthy. I have wrestled with or am wrestling with that I am not able to quit on my own. I have held on to the secret I have never shared with anybody. Would you stand up? I've struggled with making poor parenting choices. Would you stand up? I've struggled with anger, arrogance, and meanness or selfishness. Would you stand up? If somebody filled something in at the bottom of the card, would you stand up? And if you got something marked that I can't mention because we have kids in here, would you please stand up as well? If you look around you, just look around for a minute. The majority of you that aren't standing up forgot your card. That's, we'll accept that. But if you look around, you notice that nearly everybody deals with shame. Everybody struggles with shame. And the beauty of this, and the reason why we gather here, the reason why we come to this place, we call ourselves a community that cares for each other and brings hope to each other, is because we don't believe that we're alone. And you were never meant to do this alone. And the reason why we have small groups and the reason why we do what we do is for you to encourage each other and say, you're not that bankruptcy. You're not that eating issue. You're not the problem that you face. Because of Christ, because of Christ, you are fill in the blank. You can have a seat real quick. So here's what I need you to do. This Christmas, after you've eaten all that food, and you're ready for your long winter's nap. And all of a sudden, like I said, when we slow down, shame arrives in our lives. Slowing down gives us an awareness to our souls. When that happens to you during Christmas, and you're reminded, you're reminded of the shame that you feel, and you think that who you are is connected to what happened, I want you to remember that that's not true. Who we are is not connected to what happens, but who we are is what Christ has become for us. Who we are is what Christ has become for us. And so as you're sitting there, I want you to stare shame in the face and say, yep, that's me. I want you to realize that you are nothing. And that is the starting point for a new future. And I want you to say, I am not whatever it is shame is telling you are, but because of Christ, I am, you fill in the and I hope that Christmas, that Christmas will not make you feel ashamed, but you will have the best Christmas you've had in a long time. That's my hope for you. Let me pray for you, Lord. We do give thanks for this day that you've given us, for this time and this opportunity to gather on this Christmas Eve. We thank you that you are a God who has showed up in our midst and have revealed the Father to us, the very character and nature of God, who is love, who is grace, who is joy, who is mercy and forgiveness. And I pray that this year we would begin to experience not our shame, but a God who loves us deeply. So we give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.